Last week, Pastor Brad and I enjoyed a coffee conversation, and we looked at Genesis chapter 1, and we looked at the number of complexities that we see within that text. And some of us who may have grown up in the church like I did may have read that text hundreds of times and thought, well, there's no complexities whatsoever in this text. But as we explored and as we received questions from you through Twitter feeds and written notes and emails and text messages, we began to see, you know, it's a difficult passage to interpret. What exactly was the biblical author meaning here? What do we understand as scientific truth? What do we understand as theological truth? What actually happened? And as Pastor Brad mentioned, uh, we did receive a number of, of great questions, and we've done our best to respond to a portion of them thus far, and it's up on the, the website under the fifth quarter section in our resource section. And uh, I thought about once again enabling the Twitter feed this morning, but for an ulterior purpose. My Seattle Seahawks are currently playing the Chicago Bears right now, and I thought that would be nice to have an update here and there, but I did receive uh, an update a few minutes ago, and... Um, they might need a fifth quarter, actually, to, uh, to get back into this ballgame. So my phone is off, so now you have to turn your phones off, too. We have no, well, I guess we do have a Twitter feed, but uh, it's not going to be part of this morning's teaching time. I got a text message last Sunday. It was actually during the message, and I, I didn't notice it. And the question was, does God care about the Seahawks? And, and my reply to this individual was, well, of course he does. How else do you explain yesterday's victory? So, I mean, we, we, we can see the, the benefit of technology through our teaching time, I suppose. Um, as, as Brad and I talked last week, uh, one of the things that may have come to your attention, that if it didn't, you can even look in your Bibles now, is that there's actually two creation accounts in the book of Genesis. We have uh, chapter 1, Genesis, that actually moves into the first part of chapter 2, and that's where we have a seven-day creation and then we have more of a, more of a narrative uh, feel in the second creation account where we see that man is created first and then a number of other things come into being. And then woman is created later. And, and the kind of the theological teaching we get behind that is we see, okay, well, there, uh, uh, one gender was not enough. It, w- it was not suitable. We had no suitable helper for man. And so we had man and we had woman. And that's, that's kind of the direction of, of that text there. But uh, what's interesting is that... Uh, a lot of times when we look at the scriptures, we certainly look at verses and chapters, and sometimes that helps us order things in our mind. But we have the first creation story that actually isn't finished in chapter 1. And I don't know who was in charge of editing it back hundreds of years ago, but I kind of wish they would have done a better job because we're kind of left with six, day 6 in chapter 1, and then we, we have no completion. We have to go into another chapter before what, we see what happens in that seventh day. And the seventh day is our our topic this morning, and the three verses or two verses that talk about this seventh day of creation, they're very interesting. I mean, there's a lot of repetition in in this short little segment of of what happened on the seventh day. In fact, it it almost seems like the author was was given about one sentence worth of information, but was told to increase his word count, because we kind of hear the same thing two or three times, and there isn't a whole lot that we're given. And so uh, before we get too far ahead of ourselves by asking some questions of the text, let's, let's read it together. It'll be put up there on the side screens. And this is actually from the New Revised Standard Version. I chose uh, this version because it's a little bit more direct from the original language. And so this is what it says. This is uh, Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And as I mentioned, this is uh, still the first creation story. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude... And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. 
And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. About four years ago, I completed a, a lengthy paper on the topic of the Sabbath. It was part of my graduate degree. I had, to, I had to choose a topic. I had to write a paper. And so I spent months reading books, reading articles, looking pretty much at every single text in the Bible that mentioned Sabbath. And I, I poured over it. Um, I tried myself in my own life to kind of try different creative Sabbath-honoring approaches. And generally, when you have an individual that invests that much time and energy into a specific topic, we generally say, well, that person is an expert. They've kind of got that under wraps and they know what's going on. I found actually the opposite. The more I studied the Sabbath, the more I've become baffled by it. Uh, The more I've tried to craft kind of a helpful summary statement of what this Sabbath ritual is, the more confused and sometimes even frustrated I get. And a couple of years ago even, I re-skimmed my paper because I couldn't even remember what conclusion I came to. I was like, I, I don't even remember what, what happened because I get asked about it a lot because a few people know that, that I wrote on that. And even earlier this week, I'm looking at some of my conclusions and applications and I've, I'm kind of thinking, I don't even know if I agree with this anymore, what, what I wrote four years ago. I don't know. It just it feels different. And that's because the Sabbath is a tricky subject. But I think it's partly also because God had in mind that this would be a bit of an ambiguous subject. As we're about to learn, there's not a whole lot of straightforward teaching that comes to us about the Sabbath. And so while I wish that I could fulfill Pastor Brad's promise that I would come equipped with a three-point message and a poem and a nice little warm feeling at the end, I'm not going to be able to provide that this morning. Hopefully, uh, instead, what I'll be able to provide is a few more questions as we dive into this text, some observations and then hopefully some inspiration as you seek to make this a part of your spiritual discipline. Those of you who listened carefully to this passage up there on the screen will notice that I made a quick jump from talking about the seventh day of creation to all of a sudden talking about the topic of the Sabbath. There's nothing about the Sabbath here in this text. We don't even hear about the Sabbath till we get into the book of Exodus, which is quite a long further on in the journey when we're talking about Adam and Eve in the garden to Moses and the Israelites and, and the Ten Commandments. But what's interesting is that the rationale that's given in the book of Exodus, the first time uh, the the Sabbath is is mentioned, the seventh day, is when the Israelites are receiving manna and they're told not to pick up anything on the seventh day because there isn't going to be anything there. Both the, the rationale in that story and the rationale for observing the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments points back to this text. And it's all because of the fact that God rested on the seventh day. It has nothing to do with the people. They don't say anything about um, why they should observe it, how it's helpful for them, or anything like that. It all points back to the fact that God rested on the seventh day. So how we understand this text is really important for how we begin to understand what the Sabbath means and the implications for our lives today. And so um, what I'd like to do now is begin by asking some of these questions. And so we've got a few questions up on the screen. Um, we, we get a lot of questions just isolated for right here in the text. The first is, why was the seventh day necessary? Why have creation day number seven? Now, uh, some of you will realize that um, the original audience, uh, both um, both the, the Jews and the Israelites back in the Old Testament time and kind of their culture there, numerology was very important to them. And we see a lot of numbers come up in scriptures. And a lot of times we like to interpret them literally, but they're, they're very symbolic. That was a lot of 
what ancient people thought about. So the number seven is a very important number. It means completion and wholeness. And so some of our responses might be, well, we needed that for, for day seven. It kind of completes everything going on. And I guess my question is, well, why not just spread out the creation to include a seventh day? Like just push back a couple of things and maybe a less, few less animals are created in the earlier days. Let's just put it all in seven days. Forget about God's rest and you still have your numerology with seven and, and you're good to go. Like, why was that necessary? Or you might think, well, there's a seven-day week, and maybe that's the origins of that. But, but again, like, why is the rest of God needed? Why is that seventh day necessary? A s- second question that came to my mind earlier this week is, how does God's rest finish creation? I, I haven't met too many employers that after you complete a job, they think, you know what, you need some rest from this. And so just log out the rest of the hours for this project. If it took you 20 hours, let's give you another six hours of rest. That'll finish it. We might say, well, this is maybe a theology of vacation or holiday time. I'm not really sure. But it's intriguing that the text says that this finished creation. Uh, Another question is, why is the seventh day holy? And why does God make the seventh day holy? Because of his rest? How does that make it holy? And, and finally, another question, maybe the most important question, maybe the one that you're wondering about right now, is who cares? <laughs> who, who cares about the seventh day? Who cares about the Sabbath? If the seventh day and all of its teaching is connected to the Sabbath, that's an Old Testament law, isn't it? We look at the New Testament and look at uh, Jesus repeating the commandments. The Sabbath is the only command in the New Testament of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated. And there's a lot of question about it. Jesus uh, had a, a lot of discussion with the Pharisees and, and others who insisted that he was breaking the Sabbath laws. So why even worry about the seventh day and what it teaches us? Well, these are good questions. And hopefully these are some questions that we'll be in to get a little bit of traction on as we discuss the text this morning. And maybe we'll even talk about it further on uh, through email or, or Twitter or whatnot. Um, I, I'd like to begin by, by looking at the fact that even though God rested on the seventh day, the story tells us that creation was not complete. It was not complete on day six. It was completed on day seven. And what we, we, what we begin by hearing there is that even though we have everything in the world, because day seven has not happened, we see that the world is not quite functional yet. It's not quite finished. There was another step. And the step that was necessary was God ceasing his work. And ceasing is actually the best way to understand that word rest. A lot of our Bibles will say it talks about God's rest, and and that certainly is true. But when you look back to the original word in Hebrew of what that word actually meant, it means to cease. It means to stop. In other parts of the Old Testament, when that word is used, it talks about food ceasing. It talks about the, the manna that ceased to fall from the sky. And it talks about conversation in the story of Job. His friends ceased speaking with him. Conversation stopped. So that, that same word, same context for what happened with God, God stopped. He ceased to work. And the fascinating part of this work stoppage is that this leads to a blessing. It's the work stoppage that leads to this day being hallowed and blessed and made holy. But the interesting thing is this is the first time in the Bible that we see this blessing happen. God chooses to bless a day. He chooses to bless time. He doesn't pick an object. He doesn't pick a, a, a huge mountain. He doesn't pick a deep valley. He doesn't pick a sea creature. He doesn't pick a human. He picks time. And we start to, to figure out that this is, this is very different than how, 
how we think even our day and age of what's important, we see that all of a sudden time was made holy. And I'm indebted to an author by the name of Abraham Heschel, the Jewish writer. He's got a great understanding of, of the Jewish origins of, of time and the sanctity of time. In his book called The Sabbath, he says, the sanctity of time came first, the sanctity of man came second, and the sanctity of space last. The meaning of the Sabbath is to celebrate time rather than space. But it's not just the holiness of time that's important here in this story. Uh, we still have this lingering question about God's rest, the, his work stoppage when he ceased to create. Now, when, when I think about rest, and when I think about God's rest, I think, why did he need to rest? Was God tired? Did creation take a, a whole lot of energy out from him, and so he required this rest? He needed this rest. Maybe he wanted this rest. And when I think of rest for myself in my life, I think of relaxation. I think of sweatpants. I think of the couch. I think of a good book, maybe a good uh, game on TV. I think of a full stomach. I think of no dishes to wash. I think of uh, silent neighbors, and I especially think of a sleeping baby. For me, that is rest. That is relaxation. But it doesn't really matter what I think about rest. It really doesn't actually matter what you think about rest. What matters is what God did. How did he rest in this story? That's really what we're, what we're wrestling with. And what we see is, is that this word actually means, again, something that we don't always under, associate or understand with, with rest. Uh, rest actually meant it was the end result of when a crisis had been completed. That, that's kind of the, the stoppage, the ceasing word when we go back to, to this rest. That's how the people in antiquity would have understood rest. When they said, God rested, God stopped. And it was when stability had been achieved. It's like what happens when things settle down and kind of the normal routines start to, to go on. There's, there's a quote that's going to come up on the screen by an author uh, named John Walton. And he's the one who's really kind of dug into this word. He says, rest is what results when a crisis has been resolved. Stability has been achieved when things have settled down. And so what we, what we see here is, is that a crisis has now stopped. And we have to ask, well, what crisis was going on? The earth just happened. What, what sort of instability had been going on that God needed rest from after he made that stable? And the interesting thing that we often don't think about is it was the creation process in and of itself. A lot of times we're, we're um, reminded of the, the second verse, I believe it is in Genesis. It says that the earth was formless and without void, or uh, there's other ways that, that Scripture will translate that. A, a better way of translating that is that the, the earth was actually unproductive. The earth was not functional. There were components there. We see that we have waters over the deep, and we see we've got darkness, but nothing was happening. It was unproductive. And this, apparently, is where the crisis come, came from. God takes productivity and purpose and creation, and he orders the earth to bring about purpose. And at the end of six days, he comes to the seventh day, and he rests because he now has stability over the earth. We have function and purpose. But this, this still doesn't help us understand why rest is included in the story. God very well way have done this, but why include it in the story? What's the purpose of it? And as we look back at that first story, day one, two, three, four, five, six, we get to seven, we see the rhythm. We see that we have evening and we have morning, and, and we see the implication for each and every day, and we begin to see momentum building. 
And we see that for the first time, God says that it's very good when he comes to humanity. And then we come up to the seventh day. We come up to this number seven that has extreme importance. And so we have to say, there's, there's significance here in the seventh day. But what is it? What is it? And what's so difficult for us to understand in our context, apparently, in the research I've done, was very obvious to people back in antiquity. It was very obvious why this was important. It was very obvious why the seventh day became holy. And the reason was is because rest, especially divine rest, was associated with a specific place. And that place was a temple. The purpose of a temple was to house the divine. That was, a, was the deity's functional place of resting. And resting there is, is used not in the sense of kicking back and putting the, the feet up on the desk. Resting is used there in the order of doing their functional work, governing what they rule. And so you get the, you get the image of, of a president in the Oval Office or your mayor in, at his or her desk. This is where they do their work. This is where stability is. This is where they govern and do this. And so this understanding of God's rest immediately would have triggered to people's minds Rest means a temple. God is now entering in to his divine resting place. But as we see in our text, there's no temple. We don't have a temple in, in Israelites' history until after they, they used the tabernacle, which was this moving tent, sort of a moving temple. They used that for a long time as they wandered around. And, and then finally, it wasn't until we get to Solomon that actually we have a temple that's created. We're talking generations after generations. So what in the world, why are we using temple language? Why are we using rest language for the divine? And there's no temple here in the story. This is the key of the seventh day, I think, right here, is that there's no mention of the temple because this isn't a creation story about the temple, but the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And so the implication that we have, the climax here in the seventh day is the fact that God sanctifies the final day of creation, and the whole of creation is suitable for his presence. The whole of creation, the whole of the cosmos, becomes his dwelling place, his temple, his area of rule. The entire cosmos is God's temple. His rule extends to every part of the universe, from the sea to the other sides of the sea, from the heavens and the earth to the depths of the sea to the highest mountain to the lowest valley, this entire universe, entire cosmos, is God's dwelling place. Uh, Listen to this, this verse. This comes from Isaiah 66 because it wraps up a few of these concepts together. This is the Lord speaking through his servant Isaiah. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will be my resting place? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. We have temple language used here. But God's dwelling place does not dwell inside a specific place. His dwelling place dwells inside all of creation. This is why the seventh day was made holy. It was a holy moment. When you think about God's divine presence resting on the earth and saying, this is where I will function. This is where my rule will continue. This is what I shall be doing here in the creation that I have found good. I will rule it from within. And this, if this was in fact how Israel understood the seventh day, and if this was in fact where their mind would have gone and they would have understand the incredible omnipresence of God in every sphere of life, then I think we have 
a few implications for us in our life. And the first is that we stand on holy ground. Every part of creation is filled with God's presence. And so as easy as it is in our culture to think, well, when we're inside a, a chapel building, when we're attending a wedding, that's somehow more divine than when we're in an event center or when we're in our car or when we're tucking our kids into sleep or when we're in front of our computer or, or when we're working or, or when we're outside in the yard. The text, the implication here is that, no, that's not true at all. We live on holy ground. Uh, King David once said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my beds in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Every space is sacred space because it houses the very presence of the living God. So whether you're in a cubicle or your child's bedroom, or whether you're facing Niagara Falls, or whether you're on a journey across the country, it's sacred space. It's holy ground. I think another implication of of this point is found in the fact that time is sacred. We see that there was a holiness about the seventh day, but we get an understanding that if there is no place on earth that you can escape the presence of God because it is his dwelling place, then this time factor extends as well. And so we see that every moment is a holy moment. Perhaps it's, it's best to say it the same way that the prophet Isaiah said it in the same way that we will see it at some day, and that's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. It's his resting place. It's his very presence. And the seventh day reminds us of this unmistakable truth. And the truth is this, that God is in control of the cosmos. This is his control center. This is the area that he governs the universe as he set it up. His presence knows no bounds, neither time nor space. And I think this is really the point of the seventh day story. It's the purpose that the Sabbath then reminds us of. And that's the point of the Sabbath, to affirm God's control of the cosmos. To remember that God is the one who reigns in our life, that he is the one who manufactures life, that he is the one that is in ultimate control. Now the how question still lingers. If this is the truth that Israel understood from this story, if if this is somehow the the same thing that, that we should be noting when we read this story, then what do we do with this? What do we do with this point? How does this become significant in our lives? Finding ways to honor the Sabbath can be puzzling because the Old Testament Sabbath command really doesn't give us much to go on. It's incredibly uh, just open-faceted. We basically have uh, two commands about it, and one is don't work, and the other is remember it. So you really have a lot of play in, in what you can do to bring honor to that. And so it's really no surprise that over, over the years, the, the Jewish uh, scribes and the rabbis and all that, they instituted laws. Well, we, we've gotta, we can't work and we've got to remember it, so there's got to be some parameters here to make sure that we do this correctly. But the scriptures are incredibly silent about one, what one should or should not do, and I think that's designed purposely for God because it's such an opportunity to affirm God's control in the cosmos in really any way that we seem fit, whatever works within our gifts. 
Because whenever we affirm God's control of the cosmos, we affirm God's divine Sabbath and his continued work in our world. So we can honor the Sabbath by walking through the woods, gazing at his creation and being marveled at the fact that everything that we see in our world is under God's domain. We can let our our minds dwell on, on God's divine attributes and just be amazed at this creator that we have. His incredible grace in our life, his power, his majesty, his thoughts, his foreknowledge, his salvation and redemption. All of this will help us remember and remind us of the fact that God is in control. We can savor good food and honor the Sabbath that way and say God created so many good things for us to eat. And isn't it amazing how he's created our bodies and and we can be satisfied this. And, And who ever could have created a world such as this? We can celebrate God's rule in our life by the company of family and friends. Celebrating with gratitude and acknowledging that our God is in control of the cosmos. Because Sabbath really is not about rule keeping. It's about affirming God's control in our world. I think this is what Jesus meant when he was confronted by keepers of the law and the Pharisees who were always looking for ways to attack him and and get him tied up so they they could somehow accuse him of wrongdoing. I think this is what Jesus meant when he looked at them and he said, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. It's a blessing to us. It's an opportunity for us to remember. And Lord knows we have difficulty remembering. I mean, how easy is it to go about through life, through our own routines, and then to to just suddenly just kind of slowly drift and think that we're in control of the cosmos. This is, this is my world. This is how I run things. And we lose this gift that the Sabbath presents us with of saying, this is a time to cease doing what you normally do. And this is a time to affirm who is in control of our world. Because the Sabbath was made for man. It helps us remember our Creator. And when we come to this realization that God is in control, the sacredness of the Sabbath begins to have an impact on us. In a very strange way, the rest of God that's described in the seventh day all of a sudden begins to have an impact on us that we begin to experience this rest of God. There's some intriguing passages in the New Testament that use this terminology in a way that seems like there's somewhat of a link here that, that as we affirm God's control and as we put greater faith in him and as we let him rule his world, that somehow we then are blessed with this rest, with this peace of knowing that this is no longer something that we have to worry about. We receive rest from anxiety of thinking that we have to be in control. We rest from the weariness that comes from trying to be in control. Because the Sabbath is sacred when we remember the sacred space that God rules. As you think about today's message and as you think about ways that you can honor the Sabbath, you can honor God's rule in the cosmos by affirming his control, I I invite you to explore different ways that you can do this. Again, there's really no right or wrong answers here if you remember it well and if you honor God during this time. We're going to play a short video as you let your, as you let your mind uh, think about this. And this, this uh, speaks to the rest of God that God provides us with when we affirm that he is in control. Uh, this is a, a film uh, by the artist Brian Dirksen and his, and his band. And so I encourage you just to, to take some time to be silent and journal perhaps, look at the text, or look at the different worship art forms that are available there on the side screens.
Rest of God is a book title by a gentleman named Mark Buchanan. It's a good read. And he tells a wonderful story about what it means to affirm God's control of the cosmos. This is one of my favorite stories on Sabbath. 
Several years ago, Philip Melanchthon turned to Martin Luther and announced, Today, you and I shall discuss the governance of the universe. Luther looked back at him and said, No, today you and I shall go fishing and leave the governance of the universe to God. Lord God, we thank you for your gift to us. We thank you for the reminder, God, that this world is not ours to govern. That is not our calling. That is not our command. But it's yours. And that you do it well. So, Lord, as we remember the seventh day, as we affirm your control and rule and reign of this universe, help us to do it in ways that help us remember Help us to do it in ways, Lord, that, that are life-giving to us, that give us excitement, that give us purpose, that motivate us to follow you more closely. May it be something that you are pleased with, Lord. And as we go from this place, may each of us see each and every place and each and every moment as sacred. May we honor God's reign over the cosmos. May each and every one of us truly enter the rest of God. Amen. Thanks for joining us here this morning. If you'd like to talk more about the Sabbath, the seventh day, or anything else related to Jericho Ridge, uh, feel free to chat with me as we continue on this morning. Thanks.